afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Roots, a Jazz Impressions podcast. My name's Ollie. My name's Dan. And together we run jazzimpressions.co.uk, a music blog designed as a game of musical ping pong where we explore musical connections one track at a time. This connection may be the same artist, album, year, label, lineup, or another interesting connection. Now 50 posts in, we've decided to expand on this idea in podcast form. Before each episode, we'll each pick a personal favourite and separately plan our own routes between the two tracks for a selection of musical stepping stones. This isn't the numbers round on Countdown or Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, nor is the aim to get there as quickly as possible. Instead, our focus is on the most interesting route that allows us to delve deeper into our own musical interests. In each episode, we'll discuss, compare and contrast our chosen musical routes. It's worth noting that although much of our musical discussion will be weighted towards jazz and its connected genres, we will inevitably branch out and explore other music we love. For these first couple of episodes, we decided to focus our selections on jazz as a jumping off point before widening our musical net in future episodes. So without further ado, let's kick things off with today's two selections. Dan, what track have you chosen? I have picked Effendi by McCoy Tyner. How about you? I picked No Room for Squares by Hank Mobley. Would you like to go first? Works for me. So my route begins with Hank Mobley's No Room for Squares. Hank Mobley was a tenor saxophonist and released No Room for Squares in 1964 on Blue Note Records. selection to start off with yeah definitely i mean it's quintessential swinging hard bop um it's a real earworm of a track it's incredibly memorable you find yourself humming it for hours and hours if you listen to that it's just you know you can't get it out of your head and the lineup on that album is incredible yeah on that track you've got lee morgan andrew hill with an elsewhere on the record donald bird herbie hancock butch warren i mean it's really all the big hitters for Bruno at that time. Definitely. I think it's quite interesting how, when you look at the lineup, you've got Lee Morgan and Donald Byrd on trumpet duty. Because yeah. obviously they record on different tracks. So you've got Lee Morgan, and Lee Morgan appears on this actual track, No Room for Squares. You've got Lee Morgan, Donald Byrd, you've got Andrew Hill and Herbie Hancock. Again, probably the two biggest Blue Note pianists along with Horace Silver at the time. And then obviously Philly Joe Jones is the only one where he doesn't have a doppelganger. Yeah. So he's just holding it down for both both groups effectively on all the tracks. He's probably the glue in a way when you think about it, yeah. like how hard that whole album swings. He's the kind of cohesive rhythmic glue. Yeah. And especially on that track, all the fills and licks are so quintessential Philly Joe. Yeah. Definitely. And it's interesting, that lineup, looking at it, you'd expect Herbie to be the pianist on No Room for Squares on that track because it's so funky and swinging. But it's Andrew Hill. Which is strange. Best known for being a complete obscurantist. Yeah. And playing free stuff. 
quite mm-hmm. hard. A lot of Andrew Hill's records, if, if you haven't heard any of Andrew Hill's records, his style is very much flirting with kind of the avant-garde, free jazz in places. And it's not easy for, an, for a new listener to jazz. You know, Andrew Hill is not necessarily a particularly very good gateway artist to start with. But this shows that he was incredibly capable of swinging. And he wrote The Rump Roller for Lee Morgan, which was another quite straight ahead Blue Note track. Interestingly as well, if you look at the cover uh, design for No Room for Squares, I think it, it, it's another one of those perfect examples where obviously Blue Note were releasing amazing music um, from some amazingly talented art- artists. Everything that Blue Note put out in terms of from the music, from the packaging, from the engineering, everything was top quality. So you had Rudy Van Gelder, you know, doing incredible engineering on all these records, making them sound amazing. All the records were put out in, you know, heavyweight carved sleeves. You know, the, the, the quality was there across it all. And I think another thing that really made them stand out was obviously the design and photography that you see on Blue Note Records. They were kind of revolutionary at the time, again, for how they were packaging music and putting it out there. And you had Francis Wolfe, who did, uh, co-founder of Blue Note Records, who did all the photography. And he often worked with Reed Miles, who did all the, the graphic design. And the two of them were a kind of creative powerhouse in terms of defining the uh, uh, the aesthetic of the label, the visual yeah. aesthetic. And when you see on the, on the front cover of No Room for Squares, you've got Hank Mobley. And again, playing on this idea, No Room for Squares, you've got Hank Mobley smoking, looking cool as hell inside a circle. I mean, he was maybe the heaviest smoker of any jazz musician which is saying something <laughs> but yeah no it's, it's great and so when you on the cover you, you see hank mobley he's in a circle there and then on the outside you've got this little square on the outside of the circle almost it's like a visual pun um and you see that a lot with a lot of blue note records and their design so and on the again, you know. on in the uh, booklet if you actually fold out the picture it's got the full image which mm. is actually hank was mobley it, looking it, through a kind of a wiring fence yeah which you can't necessarily see from that close-up but it's such a clever bit of photography and you find that a lot on blue note records so like francis wolf would often take the photos and then they'd be cropped i don't know whether it was wolf or miles that did it but they would crop the photo to a very small section of the photo to kind of hone in on something almost giving these things off an abstract quality and divorcing them in their original subject matter but yeah fantastic album if you haven't heard it no room for squares you're looking to get into Blue Note, it's a really good entry into the kind of swinging sound of 60s Blue Note. What's your next track? I decided to go via the lineup here. So my next track I've got is Donald Bird, um, and the track is Christo Redentor, which was uh, also released in 1964 on his album um, A New Perspective. And it also features Herbie Hancock, Hank Mobley, and Donald Bird. So a very similar lineup to No Room for Squares. Ooh. probably the track that everyone knows who knows that that album um it has gone on to become a classic um it was covered by harvey mandel 
um, later on. But it is one of those classic tracks. It was on a lot of compilation, blue note compilations from DJs and things like that. And for good reason. It's just a, a beautiful ballad. And it's a really nice contrast in A Room for Squares. You know, it's the same lineup. Well, some of the same artists that you hear on No Room for Squares, obviously Hancock and Donald Byrd aren't actually playing on the track No Room for Squares. But you've got these kind of musicians playing in a different light, in kind of ballad form. Um, the actual track itself was written by um, pianist Duke Pearson, who did a lot of work for Blue Note as a composer and arranger. And it's, it, in a way, it's, it's quite a strange record because of the use of um, vocals on it, you know. Yeah, it's an experimental mm. release for Blue Note at the time. And I don't know how it was received when it came out, but I think definitely the idea of it being a new perspective I mean, I, th I think that's a play on the fact that Donald Byrd was experimenting with using a using a choir. Obviously, the name Christo Redentor translates to Christ the Redeemer, but it definitely yeah. has a kind of spiritual, religious feeling to the track. It feels like being in a sort of like in mass or some sort yeah. of um, church. But yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful ballad, incredibly serene and mellow. What's your next track on your journey? So thinking about where I'd go next on my route, um, obviously I could follow label, I could follow lineup, but I thought maybe follow what I was just touching on about the use of vocals in jazz and voices. And uh, one record, a similar record that came to mind from a kind of similar time a bit later in the 60s from 67 was um, Ahmad Jamal's um, album Cry Young, which features a track on there called Minor Moods. <laughs> so easily sound cliched or cheesy having vocals in this kind of jazz setting but these are both really good examples both Cry Young and A New Perspective of doing it with such integrity Duke Ellington did it as well with his concert of sacred music which mm. was designed to be performed in church yeah with that real that real spiritual quality well it's interesting the I was looking at the uh, on the actual album. It's the Howard the Howard Roberts Chorale um, that feature on it, um, and I had a look at what else they featured on it. It was only a couple of random albums. They were obviously, I imagine, like a local church choir. Yeah. The actual track itself, Minor Moods, was written by Ahmad Jamal and his bassist Jamil Nasser, which leads me on uh, to my next step in my journey, which is another Ahmad Jamal record. And it's uh, Ahmad Jamal's version of Effendi, which was recorded in 1971 in a live performance recorded at the Montreux Jazz Festival, uh, released on Impulse Records. <laughs> Thank you. 
that. Yeah, I hadn't heard that version before. It's much faster than the McCoy Tyner one. Mm. But in a way, it sounds like it could have been an Amarjo Mal original. Mm. It sounds so much like the kind of stuff the trio was doing at that time anyway. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because so that trio with... Um, so you've got on bass, you've got um, Jamil Suleiman. I, I think I called him Jamil Nasser earlier. That was an alias. Um, and Frank Gant on drums. And that was the same trio that you hear on iconic Ahmad Jamal um, records such as The Awakening that we covered actually on the blog if anyone's been following our blog. And Out of Time in a Space as well. And interestingly, Out of Time in a Space was a mantra session yeah. recorded in 1971. I imagine that this, re this recording that you hear on Free Flight, which has some other tracks, that it was from the same year's yeah. mantra festival and they just compiled them into two separate releases yeah, and put right. them out on impulse. I mean, you can hear the influence of, you know, is that obviously the 70s has come in, things are getting funkier, things are getting a little more kind of cosmic, definitely on the kind of spiritual jazz side. And although Ahmad Jamal never completely went, you know, over to that camp, um, you can hear the influence yeah. of, you know, Lonnie Liston-Smith and, uh, you know, Herbie Hancock and all the kind of, you know, the Miles fusion era stuff just bleeding into his music a bit through the yeah. use of Rhodes there and Chikoria and people like that. Um, I think it's quite interesting on that on that record as well how you've got uh, Ahmad Jamal's playing both Rhodes and piano and he alternates between the two. Yeah. So you've got the piano that cuts through and then he goes deep on the spacey Rhodes and that Rhodes as well. It's got this kind of beautiful kind of earthy, earthy sound that sounds. It's kind of almost like uh, about to kind of combust. Yeah. You know, like the sound, the lo-fi quality of the sound. It's a bit like with a sampler. If you like tune something down in a sampler, it pulls the sound apart. Yeah. and adds all these extra kind of harmonics and it just feels very live and very kind of hands-on. It's really propulsive. Mm. I think free, free Flight is an appropriate name for the album. No, definitely. And it's uh, quite often I don't associate Armour Jamal with that kind of driving sound. So it's quite interesting to hear, you know, quite often I associate him more with those kind of lighter mid-paced, yeah. you know, ballads and kind of swung, beautifully kind of like swung lyrical playing. I think there's something about so. the live, the festival setting as well. For sure, yeah. The musicians tend to be inspired to maybe be a bit more aggressive. Mm. Uh, I think of Bill Evans when he played in Montreux mm. with Jacques Jonette. Again, plays in a way that's not the usual introspective Bill Evans style. Definitely. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Which brings us to the final uh, step on uh, on my route, which is McCoy Tyner Trio's uh, version of Effendi. It was the original version of Effendi, composed by uh, Tyner himself, and it appeared on um, his debut album uh, on Impulse in 1962 uh, called Inception. version of Effendi um, it was obviously written for trio so like Ahmad Jamal interestingly you've gone from again trio setting to another to another trio this time with McCoy Tyner you had Elvin Jones and Art Davis playing with him so and it's the John Coltrane quartet minus John Coltrane 
basically. Which, yeah. So I think at the time, the album wasn't that well received because people sort of thought they've only given McCoy Tyner his own chance to record as leader because of his connections with John Coltrane. Mm. And they thought that Tyner's nothing special. I mean, this is obviously early days in his development. You can already hear that he's got something special about him. Yeah. But he's definitely not the McCoy Tyner that he would become, certainly in the Coltrane years and the post-Coltrane era where he really started pushing the boundaries of what jazz piano sounded like. It's interesting, like, listening to his early sound on this record, it, I feel in a way there's a similarity between uh, Ahmad Jamal's playing and Tyner's playing with these two tracks. So when you listen to Ahmad Jamal's version, it's very nimble and kind of driving and he manages, you know, he moves around the keys with great speed and, um, you know, dexterity. And I feel that on Makai Tyner Trio's version, it's, it's although it's slower, um, you still have that kind of style from Tyner, very nimble, um, and, but you get a little more of that percussive edge that you'd hear him develop throughout his career and yeah. into his later career and he'd become known for that, a lot more of a kind of almost like searching percussive sound yeah. that he'd play with that obviously is very different to what we know Ahmad Jamal for. But it's interesting at this point in his career, it feels, I don't know to you whether you feel it sounds similar, it but the two definitely have that that light, kind of quite nimble way that they move around the piano. Yeah, and Effendi is definitely the track on this album that is the most clear demonstration of what Mackay Tyner could do and would go on to do. Mm. The other stuff I don't I don't think is as memorable as Effendi is. Effendi really feels like a, like you said, it crystallises, you know, it's a bit yeah. of a mission statement. It's a McCoy Tyner mission statement for what yeah. he did. And shows his compositional potential, mm. writing this very beautiful, but also uh, slightly edgy piano piece. Definitely. And I think, you know, at the same time as well, you saw John Coltrane, I think it was in either this year or the year after he released Impressions. And, you know, that was the beginning of him starting to experiment with modal composition and modal jazz and looking, you know, east for inspiration to Indian music and, you know, uh, music from the Far East as well. So I think this, it's kind of interesting. You kind of see the, the, the beginnings of that as well. Yeah. And obviously, two years later, they go on to record A Love Supreme. Yeah. Interestingly, um, the, the album is uh, engineered by Rudy Van Gelder, which kind of brings us full circle. Yeah. I thought it was funny because obviously... Hank Mobley's No Room for Squares was engineered by Rudy Van Gelder and it just shows also how prolific yeah. um, and you know widespread Rudy Van Gelder's yeah, kind of want... touch was on jazz genuinely yeah. you know if you want something to sound good you get Rudy Van Gelder to record it but it wasn't even it wasn't even like exclusively on on Blue Note it's interesting like some engineers you'll know them for working on you know particular artist body of work but it's funny how he just seemed to work with everyone yeah and you look at you know CTI records they were all yeah. They're all uh, mixed and mastered by Rudy Van Gelder. Prestige. Prestige stuff. I think you've got stuff on there as well. Impulse, yeah. obviously. It's just like his name is everywhere. It's yeah. just like a stamp of quality. You know, yeah. RVG. That's all you need to look and out it is for. it's incredible to think this is the early 60s. And I know some of it's been remastered. But even when you hear the stuff I hasn't, you're like, the separation here is incredible. Yeah. There are the well-recorded albums that weren't Rudy Van Gelder. Mm. But none of them sound as good. And wasn't it? The studio is basically in his parents' house. Originally, I think it was in his parents' house. In New Jersey. Yeah, and then I think afterwards he moved out. He moved out there into them and then they had the, uh, they set up the, the other studio which was outside there. But originally it started off in his they, parents' house in the front the, room, I think, you know. And they used the um, the window to the kitchen yeah. as a kind of 
studio studio wall between the recording yeah. booth and thing i mean it's 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 like you know you look at nowadays you look at you know bedroom producers with their laptop in their bedroom he's kind of like the the yeah. og bedroom producer isn't he you know <laughs> it's true. i mean it probably helps if your parents have a very nice house yeah but yeah so anyway we've come full circle and uh yeah so we've arrived here at fendi great route i love the choral link especially i think that's a really interesting yeah cheers man part of jazz that like I say, when it's done well, it's really moving. And when it's done badly, it's really bad. And when it's done badly, it's, it's the Frasier theme song. Yeah, and you just want to turn off the record and just... Actually, I don't know why I'm bit. sliding off the Frasier theme song. I quite like that song. Yeah, of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. Okay, um, so let's let's come to your route then. Which, which direction did you go? Did you go from Effendi to No Room for Squares or the other way around? No, I've gone the same direction as you. Okay. So after No Room for Squares... I have gone with The Sorry with the Fringe on Top by Sonny Rollins on his album Nukes Time, which was released on Blue Note in 1959. tell me what the connection there yeah i mean looking at the album artwork he's also a saxophonist wearing sunglasses but i know that's not going to be the link because that's too tenuous that's every saxophonist yeah literally for blue note throughout the 60s rollins isn't smoking oh that is true i mean he's smoking in a musical sense but definitely not in a not in an actual sense he probably lived longer as well than hank mosley still alive is he still alive yeah yeah oh shit well there we go yeah but no, jokes aside, um, it's got to be the link with Philly Joe Jones, right? Correct. Philly Joe Jones. I mean, that track is a duet between Rollins and Philly Joe Jones. There are other musicians on the album. Mm. Um, Winton Kelly and Doug Watkins. Uh, but yeah, it's just the two of them on Sorry With The Fringe On Top. And I think it's such a great... Well, firstly, it does something that is one of my favourite things in jazz which is turning a show tune on its head, which Rollins was a master at. Mm. Also, it's such a great showcase for Philly Joe Jones, who shows that you don't actually need the rest of the band. He's not just the beat, he's the whole rhythm section. Yeah. He's, he's comping, he's soloing. There's a kind of battle between them at the end where he matches Sonny Rollins' licks on the drum kit. Right, yeah, yeah. And it's inter- it's interesting because it's not a common it's not a common setup you see in jazz where it's just strictly you know you'll hear duets where maybe it maybe just be a bass player and a pianist you know maybe doing their thing and the drummer's either non-existent or in the background but it's funny to have sax and drums yeah with no bass or no keys or anything like that literally just interplay between the two of them and Rollins I think forth. was obsessed with this idea of freedom in music and would strip away the piano in quite a radical way because he wanted the freedom that you only get by not having that, that comping instrument, mm. which he explored a lot. Um, Philly Joe Jones, obviously so-called, because he was from Philly, and there was already a drummer called Joe Jones. 
Right, interesting. So they called him Philly Joe Jones. Today. Yeah, who's the younger of the two. Okay. Miles Davis tells some great stories about him in his autobiography, about how when they were staying in hotels, Philly would always try and get out of paying the bill for his room, <laughs> including once he threw his bags out of the window, uh, went downstairs to reception and said, I'm not paying this bill. And they said, yes, you are. We've locked your room, so you can't get your stuff until you pay. So Philly goes, fine, let me just go and get the money. Goes outside, runs down the alley where his bags are, picks them up and runs away. <laughs> Giggling, according to uh, Miles Davis's account. So yeah, he was... Uh, That's amazing. He was a, an incredible <laughs> character, as well as being one of the greatest drummers to ever live. Yeah. And that was a relatively new composition at the time. Obviously, it's from Oklahoma, the Rogers and Hammerstein musical from 1943. Mm. This version was recorded in 1957 yeah. and then released two years later. So, yeah, it'd been a hit on Broadway. And Sonny Rollins just sort of pulls it apart, plays the melody a bit, but then plays everything else. Yeah. Well, it's like all those, all those jazz musicians, isn't it? You know, when, when you cover show tunes, it's never just... Yeah. You know, like, you know, any other genres where you see like rock stuff or whatever, it's, you know, it's just basically just covering these things. They maybe do something slightly different, but with jazz, it's a completely different. And I think that's why a lot of, I mean, we're calling it a cover, really. We shouldn't even call it a cover. It's more of a, just a, a version of a jazz, what's become a jazz standard. Yeah. Or, but it's, it's interesting how, you know, the, the room, obviously, because of the caliber of, of jazz musicians and what they're able to do with the music, you can completely flip it on its head and you can take maybe even the corniest kind of tune yeah and like you know i've played you stuff recently like that stanley cow a whole new world cover yeah and you're listening to that and you think this is a tune from aladdin like how the you know how the hell could this yeah. be you know made redeemable and yeah. you listen to it and you go this is incredible which shows obviously testament to the original writing of the tune it's obviously quite a good tune but also in the, the right hands you can get a really unique take on something yeah um and take it to another area that no other musicians would be able to take it to and Rollins did this with uh, there's no business like show business as well. Oh, really? These songs okay. that, I mean, aren't necessarily... I mean, they're great tunes in their own right, to be fair. Yeah. There's no business like show business, but it's very much... But that's not yeah. a perennial tune that's reinterpreted by jazz musicians, particularly. Yeah, for sure. Um, also, just a quick note on the title, Nuke's Time. Nuke was uh, Tony Rollins' nickname, because oh, he looked okay. like Don Newcomb, who was a pitcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Oh, Interesting, I didn't know that. I was wondering where that came from, Call it in Nuke's time. Again, Miles tells a story about um, they were taking a cab once and the driver thought it was Newcomb, not Sonny Rollins. Oh, right, yeah. And so they said, yeah, why don't you come down to the, to the game later? Just tell them your name and we'll tell them that you are allowed to come in. Don't know what happened to him. <laughs> Presumably he wasn't allowed in. <laughs> so harsh. <laughs> Cool, right. So yeah, great pick, man. Really enjoyed that. So where 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 do you go from there then? From there, I've gone for another version of "Sorry with the Fringe on Top." Okay. From Oklahoma, this time by McCoy Tyner, on "Time of Tyner," another Bruno album from 1968, and it sounds like this. <laughs> Thank you. 
that's only, what, six years after his debut, Inception. You can hear how he's progressed as a pianist. He's so kind of radical in the in the kind of rhythms he's using, the strange harmonies, ideas that seem to kind of spill out of him at this point. He definitely he definitely sounds more assured. Yeah. In terms of his playing, in terms of confidence. Obviously, I mean, he sounds confident on uh, on Inception, but you can see how far he's come. Yeah. Obviously, having played with Coltrane, having been greatly influenced by you know Coltrane and playing in the quartet. Like Sorry, the French on top is a uh, quite a sweet sounding song in its original context, but yeah, this version is a real barnstormer. If, if that's not too much of a pun. And Time to Time is a really good album with um, Herbie Lewis, who you hear on bass there. Freddie Wakes on drums. Also on the album, we've got Bobby Hutchison on vibes, but he's not on that on that particular track. Mm. But it's a brilliant record with a very strange album cover with uh, McCoy Tyler's face. Oh, yeah, and the clock. clock. Yeah. yeah, it's super cool, that. Yeah. I really like that, you know. And again, it's interesting as well. So also on Blue Notes, we were talking earlier how you shift you know, that was re- released, what's it, in 1968? So, you know, by that point, you look at, you know, Blue Note's design. So we looked at, uh, you compare it to Hank Mobley's No Room for Squares, and it's that kind of classic 60s Blue Note design of a kind of moody black and white photo of the musician with maybe some colour accents and some kind of heavy graphic design. And then you look at Time for Tyner. At this point, they were moving more into, you know, doing different different things with covers and maybe you know, expanding a little bit in terms of the subject matter that they yeah. used on things. It wasn't just kind of text and stylish photographs. It was, you know, yeah, they'd do some quite more out there things. So I don't know, but the, the other album that um, comes to mind is Tyner's, is it Expansions? Yeah. So yeah, you can see like the photo of McCoy Tyner, but he's on these weird like kind of cubes. Yeah. And I mean, it's very, you know, it's very almost kind of like late 60s, 70s, has a kind of psychedelic quality to yeah. it. But it's kind of interesting as well from a, again, a symbolic perspective. I mean, I don't think they were necessarily going for that at the time, but you look at the way kind of McCoy Tyner kind of broke down convention yeah. and, you know, the way he was kind of out there and it kind of reflects that kind of idea. You're expanding your mind, you're expanding his perspective on music. Yeah. And he's been kind of, it's like he's been sliced with on those, uh, <laughs> those apple slices you know, that you push down onto fruit. It's kind of like he's, he's been the victim of the apple slice. So obviously from McCoy Tyner. I can see where this is going. <laughs> Playing Surrey Fringe on top to Effendi, uh, the final destination. I mean, McCoy Tyner, what is there to say? He died in 2020 yeah. and left behind one of the greatest legacies of any pianist in jazz. Yeah, I think it's, you know, sometimes it's, it's not until people have passed that you realise just how um, remarkable a musician they were and how influential they were. Yeah. And you look at suddenly everyone saying how much they influenced them or you start noticing the connections with all these, you know, you look at their legacy and what they actually contributed. Yeah. Um, and it's quite incredible. Someone like McCoy Tyner, he, he recorded loads of albums. Yeah. I mean, he was pretty prolific. And also, it's not just loads of albums. Like, the quality was there. Even when he moved from Blue Note and went into you know, Milestone and released all those albums on Milestone in the in the kind of 70s and stuff like that. Again, just the, the quality is excellent. And we wrote about his album Sahara on the blog. Oh, of course, which yeah. Which is an amazing Sahara. record where he really branches out and plays uh, the Koto. Yeah. And you can hear him opening up, experimenting with kind of nature sounds. It kind of feels like in the 70s, he probably did what John Coltrane, where, where John Coltrane would have been going had he not, you know, passed away so soon. Yeah. 
it feels that kind of people like McCoy Tyner, Alice Coltrane, they continued the legacy that yeah. John Coltrane had started, you know, had started off. Um, obviously, you know, the, the stuff that you hear from John Coltrane in the, the very last moments of his career are incredibly kind of out there. Yeah. And Tyner and Elvin Jones left Coltrane's band because the music was getting so far out. Yeah. And McCoy Tyner said, I couldn't hear myself anymore. Yeah, it's and interesting. I wasn't though, feeling it. it. He said, well, I don't feel it, I don't play. Yeah, that's so interesting. his own thing. But yeah, like you said, still with that, with what he learned from John Coltrane. You've got that. You've got that inherent kind of spiritual feeling in his music. Yeah. Um. Definitely. You know the modal qualities of the music, and also the deeper kind of spiritual essence that you hear on "A Love Supreme." You hear that channeled into McCoy Tyner's approach to jazz all yeah. the way through. You know his '60s output and into the '70s as well, even into the '80s. I think when he was still recording. So yeah, absolutely monumental musician. Good route, man. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Obviously, a little more direct than mine. Um, but yeah, definitely uh, an interesting interesting line of connections there, especially the Sonny Rollins, uh, the Sonny Rollins, Philly Joe Jones stuff. Um, I didn't know a lot about that record particularly and also what a character Philly Joe Jones was. So yeah, that brings us to the end. Um, we hope you enjoyed this first episode of Roots, a Jazz Impressions podcast. Uh, be sure to check out our blog. Uh, follow us on Instagram and Twitter if you use it. Subscribe to the podcast, obviously, for future episodes. We plan on rolling some some more out, obviously, in the coming weeks. Um, explore some of our curated playlists over on the Jazz Impressions Spotify. Um, and all the links can be found to all of that on our website, um, jazzimpressions.co.uk. And finally, if there are any other interesting routes that we could have taken, we'd love to hear from you. And let us know if there are any tracks that you'd like to hear featured in future episodes. We like a challenge, so nothing is off limits. So join us again soon for another round of musical ping pong. And don't forget, if you want to get out of paying your hotel bill, simply throw all your stuff out the window. Presumably he didn't have symbols in his bags, because that would have been a dead giveaway. Yeah, I was gonna say you didn't sound like a film. <laughs> so it's like how do you know that how do you know the drummer's leaving the hotel room to get